100% with you on exogenous ketones being like a fourth macronutrient because yeah. fat is not the same as ketones. And like, especially like when now we see science that skeletal muscle tissue has the ability to use free fatty acids, not even ketones in highly conditioned fat adapted people. Yep. So it just goes to show that some cells will preferentially use free fatty acids and some will use ketones, which leads us to honestly believe that they're not equal. They're not one in the same. So don't right. look at fats as ketones. Like they are different. Right. And I think we'll start to see more evidence later on that's just like, there's probably different subbodies of ketones to be completely honest. I yep. mean, obviously we know BHP, acetoacetate, acetone, whatever, but I'm sure it's going to go further than that. Thomas DeLauer, really great to have you on the Age for Men podcast. No, stoked to be here, man. Yeah, and of course, you're hosting in your headquarters here down in Los Angeles. Describe the setting a little bit for folks who are listening. You have the infamous kitchen setup <laughs> in the studio back there, and you also have your, I guess, in-house gym or in-office gym. Yep. Sounds like you're upgrading soon, so that should be exciting for all your fans and followers. So obviously, we have a lot of overlapping interests and context here. We spent like the last hour, an hour and a half just catching up and chatting. And I think one of the most interesting places to start perhaps is that folks probably see all your multiple, you know, weekly, multi, you know, multiple times a week updates on your self-experiments, talking about low-carb, high-fat diets, drink diets. But sometimes your own personal story gets lost in that mix. Can you step back and do a quick overview for your personal journey for folks that don't know that? It's been a wild ride. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give a little bit of context first and then kind of give the whole background. But I've been doing the ketogenic diet for, shoot, since 2010. So keto has been a big part of my life for a very long time. And it really came into my life a lot more so with a call to action because I needed to lose a lot of weight and I needed to get healthy. Backing up even further, I was an athlete when I was in high school. I was an all-state rugby player. I was an all-state trackster. I ran cross country. I was pretty athletic. And it wasn't until my late teens when I started kind of damaging my knees from so much running that I started doing a little bit of weightlifting and I became much less active. I was weight training, but I wasn't running. I went from being a runner. Literally, I ran my first marathon when I was just before my 12th birthday. And I could go out and I could eat seven or 8,000 calories and it wouldn't be an issue because I was burning it. And then I go from that to having injuries and not being able to work out nearly as much. So I take up weightlifting so I can do something. But I mean, the calories that I was consuming with endurance work is like, <laughs> that's a whole different world. So of course, you know, I started to pile on weight and it started to pile on pretty quick. Then I got into the healthcare world. I was an executive recruiter and a healthcare recruiter or a physician recruiter. So pretty high stress job, especially when you're, when you're young. I mean, I, quite frankly, it was a commission only job and you know, you're really chasing the almighty dollar and money was pretty good. I started making good money and started chasing money. So for me, it was more about, okay, well, how do I just make the next chunk of change versus how do I get the next workout in? And I was still eating like I was an so you can do the math, high stress job, sedentary, and then eating like I was still an athlete. Obviously it posed a big issue. So you know, a year and a half later, here I am sitting 280 pounds and you know, stress is just compounding. At that point in time, I picked up a role uh, with an ancillary lab services company. So what that meant is we provided basically like salivary cortisol testing and, and other ancillary lab services to predominantly fee-for-service doctors. What that means is that we were providing the ability for physicians to test patients' blood work without having to bill insurance. They were able to do this in a fee-for-service model, which at that point in time was 
was a really big thing. Fee for service was just getting popular. So it was stressful because we were trying to teach people that world. The reason I'm saying all this is because this gives context as to how I have a little bit of some medical knowledge and how I understand the human body. Because when you're working in that capacity and you're dealing with physicians all day long and you're also dealing with their patient population, you have to learn how the body works. Otherwise, you don't make money. And I just decided that I really liked it. I really enjoyed what I was doing and I enjoyed how the human body worked, especially because I was a former athlete. Except one glaring problem. I was extremely overweight, <laughs> passionate about the human body. And it was kind of hard for me to be like, hey, you know, you should buy this product and you should use this in your practice and help your patients become healthy you know, excuse me, let me eat some tater tots. Like it just- You didn't want to be a hypocrite. Yeah, it just wasn't, wasn't working. Plus, I mean, the big thing was, is, you know, you're having a beautiful wife that I had you know, been with since high school. And I started feeling, I'm just like, she deserves better than this. Like, this is crazy. Like, I'm just like not taking care of myself. So that's how I turned to the ketogenic diet. And it was me turning to the ketogenic diet simply because the physicians that I was working with were actually ones that turned me on to it. I mm -hmm. was fortunate enough to be in the right world where the doctors that I were work, was working with at that point in time were proponents of the ketogenic diet. I mean, I was a sponge. I was ready to take in whatever someone would throw at me because I would have done anything to lose weight at that point in time. I mean, it's just count my lucky stars that I was with the right people at the right time that turned me on to keto. And it was all about Thomas, like it's all about inflammation. That's what they're telling me. Like it's just you know, if you can control the inflammation, then you can you can lose weight in your body. Your everything will turn around. You know, and that's where it all began. And fasting keto way before it was ever popular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just wind back the clock. I mean, that's nine years ago. And I remember even three years ago when you just type in ketones, the first result on Google was ketones are a toxic byproduct of being in, in diabetic ketoacidosis. Yep. Right, that was like two three years ago. So nine years ago. That must have been fairly alternative. At that time, I'm sure the only quote-unquote legitimate use case for a ketogenic diet was for drug-resistant epilepsy, probably. So yep. curious to get your thought process at the time when you get the dogma of a balanced Western diet, have your carbs, have you know most of your diet of the FDA food pyramid is from yep. carbs. How did you go from, okay, let's kind of invert that table? Was that scary? Was it, would you have nothing to lose? Yeah. It was did, did you research it yourself? I mean, how did you even research it? Because there's not that much online literature at the time. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely a big research nerd. You know, it was interesting. I had always been a little bit of an unconventional person. I mean, I ran, like I said, I ran my first marathon just before my 12th birthday. I've always did things Nuts. to, yeah. you know, the beat of a different drum. Yeah. So I was not afraid to say, okay, this sounds like I had no biases one way or the other. For me, it was like anything was better than, I knew pizza, tater tots, and fast food wasn't really going to do the trick. Like right. that wouldn't work, right? So I was open to it. It wasn't just because they were doctors. They just so happened to be the people that explained it to me the best. And they explained inflammation in a way that really made sense. And it was like, by the way, one of the best ways to modulate inflammation is through, you know, what's called a ketogenic diet. And the only things that I could find online for the keto diet were on like bodybuilding forums that had talked about, you know, using it as a way to cut body fat before a competition, but don't you dare do it for longer than a period of time because you're going to waste away and lose a bunch of muscle. I had a decent amount of muscle on me already. So I was like, okay, well, you know, if I lose some muscle, I lose some muscle. It's not a big deal. I wasn't too worried about it. I was so overweight. I just didn't really care. Yep. And it was very unconventional for those doctors too. And it's important to note that most of these doctors that we were working with, they were working with concierge medicine. So they were working with patients that were paying them cash to be their retained doctors. Got it. Now, so this we, is a bespoke audience. Exactly. So it's like if you have a typical patient population, a doctor is going to have them go whatever route they need to go so that the doctor gets the proper reimbursement. ICD, at the time, ICD-9, starting to change over to what's called ICD-10 you know, right. classification coding. And it was like, 
if they were working with a normal patient population that was going through the reimbursement continuum, the typical insurance standard of care, then they probably never would ever prescribe a diet like this. Right. Because it just there would be no ICD-9 or ICD-10 code to actually validate it or get paid for it. Right. So because these patients were working with these doctors in this capacity, if the patients weren't getting a positive outcome from whatever these doctors were ordering, the patients would fire them. And we're talking affluent patients that would probably pay these doctors 10 grand a month to have them on retainer. And if they weren't getting results, like, there's the door, doctor, you're not doing your job. So these right. doctors actually did care for the results that their patients would get. So I really did take to heart what they were teaching me. And they're the ones that you know gave me my first subscription to what was called later on called Up to Date, which was like a way for me to get like just research journals. They like gave me a subscription to it. They're like, this is what we use. Like, you know, you can check out all these journals and check out all this stuff. Right. And I just became obsessed. And it was at that point where I literally just like dove into books, dove into as much research as I could to try to figure out, okay, what am I doing with my body? And how do I get excited about it? Because one thing I knew about myself is that if I got excited about something, I would stick with it and I would yeah. just continue to do it. And I'm sure that getting access to the doctors, you could probably start seeing some of the lab results as well in terms of looking at people's blood glucose, their lipids, yeah. and getting some sense that, okay, this might have seen kind of alternative from standard of care, but the results were real. I, I'm sure you were seeing some of these patients on a ketogenic diet working and then seeing that on yourself. So we were pretty excluded from seeing that stuff, but I mean, I had to trust these doctors that we're working with. Again, I mean, these were patients that were literally paying $10,000 a month retainer. And like concierge medicine is much bigger now and much more affordable than it was, you know, eight, nine years ago. Yep. Like back then it was, it was before the Affordable Care Act had really come into place. So like after that, not going political at all, I'm just saying as a standard of reference for what happened with the medical community is when that went into place, a lot of physicians had a hard time keeping their businesses in practice anymore mm -hmm. because it, it changed the dynamic. Their patient load got really large all yep. of a sudden. So because their patient volume went up, they weren't able to provide a good standard of care. So the good ones either became concierge doctors and built a business for themselves where they worked on a cash basis, or they became hospitalists and went to work for a hospital yeah. system. And the ones that go to work for a hospital system end up just, they just kind of end up going into the into the system, into the abyss where they just push yeah. patients through, call it McDonald's healthcare, you know, it's like, and then when you look at the ones at that point in time that knew how to work with patients, they built their own businesses out yep. of it. So I had to really take their faith, you know, their word for it and have some faith that they knew what they were doing because, hey, like their patients are getting yeah. results. It'd be interesting to hear about your journey from, okay, you, are kind of out of shape and a big dude and not necessarily healthy and you get exposed to the ketogenic diet and then over the last nine years you've built a huge presence in a machine around educating and helping a lot of people what was that journey like was that a dream that you had as a kid growing up like how did you even stumble upon this path no i never wanted to be even remotely famous. I mean, I'm such an introvert, man. Like there's a reason that I enjoy being on camera. It's because I, I get to talk to my, my intimate film crew and I get to help a lot of people without having to actually be an extrovert. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's like we have this extrovert ideal growing up yep. where we're supposed to be the loud one in the room. We're supposed to be the one that's always standing up on the soapbox and explaining things. It's like, I'm like, wow, like I had so many good ideas that I thought were coming into my head, but I just was never able to just have that desire to be the one that's like loud. And like, I found a way to be able to, thanks to social media and thanks to technology, be able to weigh, not only to spread the word, but also actually to overcome some of my own insecurities with like my own voice, right? Like I, now nah, people will think that's stupid. People will think, nah, I don't want to say that. Oh, you know, what the doctor's saying actually makes a lot of sense. I think I could articulate a little bit better, but nah, I probably will sound stupid. You know, it's like, it's given me the crutch to be able to get over that. Yep. So the journey has been wild because it went from losing weight, getting in decent shape, seeing like, hey, like I actually have a decent body under this. Like maybe like all that work I did in high school actually kind of paid off. 
you know, telling my wife, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can get on a magazine cover. Like, I think I have enough business acumen that I can reach out to the right people and make it happen. Plus, I think I look. So I was like, okay, watch, you know, in a year, I think I'm going to be on a cover of a magazine. And 11 months later, boom, you know, so, you know, I had my first magazine cover, which was Muscle and Performance Magazine at that point in time. So there was a period of time there where, like, there wasn't any, dare I say, monetization or any like building of an actual brand that would make money. It was just more about like perfecting myself. I'm like, I actually left the job. I left, you know, the ancillary lab services company. They got acquired by a private equity fund and I left at that point in time. And I was like, okay, it's time to find something new. I actually knew I didn't want to be in healthcare anymore because I was kind of sick of it. I was, it was such a black tie environment and I'm not like a black tie kind of person. Yep. Like I spent so much of my like suiting and booting it in the uh, healthcare world. It's the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be a flip-flop CEO, you know? And uh, <laughs> so like I had this period of time. Oh, flip-flops, I think. I know. <laughs> but I'm in California. I can get yeah. over there. So I had to kind of figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do? So this period of time where, you know, I did some magazine shoots and I ended up getting some pretty good mainstream media exposure because of those magazines. And then when I started doing interviews and podcasts because of that, people were like, wait a minute, like you actually understand the human body. Like this is cool. Like we, we work with a lot of fitness people and they never really explain things in a medical way that you explain things. And it was over time, over a period of a couple of months that I realized like, this is my gift. Like, this is actually what I'm good at. And quite frankly, it's what made me good at what I did in medical device sales and ultimately in being in, you know, ancillary lab services world. Like I had to be able to explain the human body and if people didn't understand it, of course they wouldn't buy it. Especially doctors, you got to talk at a doctor level and you yeah. got to help them understand their patients. And it's like, wow, no wonder I was good at that. I think I have an ability to do that. And I recognized that. So I got that boat of confidence that I needed there. And that's when I started the channel. So it was kind of that way. I was like, okay, well, let's just go for it. And I think I was also at a nice point in time when you know social media algorithms were not as crazy as they are now. Like, right. I unfortunately think it's very difficult for someone to build a brand now, like someone, uh, a personal brand. I think it's very difficult for someone to become an influencer or start a brand now because the algorithms are largely not in their favor. It's tough. Uh, so I was at a point where if you had good content, it would get served. People would see it. And I was just like, I'm just going to create a lot of content. And so one of the biggest things that I did is invest in building a good team early on. I built a big team. I hired a bunch of videographers, a bunch of editors, and I made them my family. And I made sure that they were on board with what my mission was. And I'm like, we're going to create just more content than anyone's ever seen. And we're just going to go at it. And I just became the ultimate research nerd and just dove into as much as I possibly could. And then I started learning, okay, well, how do I you know, leverage this a little bit more and actually be able to drive you know, some revenue with it. So I started creating some eBooks and learned Facebook traffic and learned all that world. And, you know, that was able to me, get me to run paid traffic so I could get more visibility while yep. seeing at least just enough return on investment to at least cover my costs so I could continue to scale up and get my brand out there. So it was a little bit of uh, paid advertising, guerrilla marketing in the, in the first part. So, I mean, I took a lot of my, like my wife and I were looking at, we're like, okay, I was like, honey, we've got we got three months to make this work or we're going to be living with mom and dad. Like, like we, like we, here's what we got. Like we're going to put it into Facebook and we're going to put it into pumping up the brand and do what we can. And fortunately it was like the grace of whatever you want to call it. Like keto just started getting popular then. Right. And it was like, I was talking about it from a different angle and it was just like, kaboom. And I was like, all right, we don't have to live with mom and dad. And yeah. <laughs> like, no, credit to that. I mean, timing it in some balls, right? Like yeah. you had some conviction there. No risk, no reward. It was, I was I was adamant. I mean, I saw my results with it and I, I haven't even talked about my wife's story. I'll have to save that for another day. But my yeah. wife, you know, uh, you know, autoimmune diseases, Lyme disease, like she's was really sick and like the keto diet saved her. I mean, so it was like, I owed it to her and I had lost a lot of weight with it, had a lot of success with it, felt great. It saved our marriage simply because like she was so depressed and sick and uh -huh. I was overweight and sick and depressed. And it was just like, 
people will give me crap sometimes about the keto diet and say whatever they want to. And I'm just have to look at them and say like, you have no idea. Like, you know, you try, you know, walk your shoes for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you can say whatever you want about the keto diet, but what it did for my family and what it did for my wife and what it did for like keeping this together, like you have no idea. So insult me all you want, but I go home at night knowing that like this changed my life and it's changing other people's lives. Yeah. And I think what you touched upon when you first initially started researching the keto diet was like very much in the bodybuilding, almost like the hardcore optimizing world. And I think from medical literature, there's some applications for therapeutic use. And obviously today, it's starting to enter and creep into just mainstream. This is maybe what people should be considering as a standard diet, right? You have Kim Kardashian's The World talking about their ketogenic diet. I'm curious from your vantage point as you've seen that arc in history, what elements of like the hardcore bodybuilding world, which arguably is pretty cutting edge in terms of like biohacking and, and experimentation, what did you see come from that world? And what did you see come from the therapeutic world from use as an epilepsy diet or use from, you know, diabetes or, uh, else, you know, you know, some of the metabolic syndrome controlled diet. Like, yeah. how, did you get inspired by both sides of the world or where did your inspiration come from? I found that like by combining both reasonings, like from the bodybuilding world yeah. and, and the medical world, I was like, I looked at this and I was like, ah, like this is the recipe to make a super, like a superhuman. Like yeah. this is like, okay, you're telling me that like I can get ripped, but then like these guys in the bodybuilding world at that time were couldn't care less about the cognitive effect. I mean, right. these guys, you could have asked them to eat anything. If it made them ripped, they'd do it, right? Yep. But so I was like, okay, well, that's fascinating. And you look in forums and it's all like kind of pseudoscience. And quite frankly, there's nothing really wrong with pseudoscience if it's not used in like ill fashion, right? Like right. pseudoscience is just kind of like science that's just hasn't been put in a paper yet. So there can be some like, it depends on how you look at it. So like right. some of this stuff was like, okay, this is people talking about like what they're, use was and in my opinion i consider that pseudoscience right like then there's the medical journals are talking about it from the side of okay here's what it's done for therapeutic effects and there's some you know measurements in terms of ketones in the brain and, and glucose in the brain and how things work there so i was definitely inspired by both you know but for me my first thought was okay i gotta get this weight off so i mean i look over in the cosmetic side and then it didn't take long it took you know maybe a couple of months before i was really feeling what I would consider the therapeutic effects. Like joints weren't hurting as much, back wasn't hurting as much. Things just felt a lot better. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think if you look at keto sort of as a gateway drug, for lack of a better term, it like opens you up to this whole other world. And once you're thinking clean and clear, and once that brain fog has lifted, then you start becoming interested in the more biohack kind of things. Yeah. You know, bodybuilders don't know they're biohackers, right. but they are, right? Yeah. Like so. I was never really a bodybuilder, but like that community fed me a lot of what I knew about the ketogenic diet from a body composition side, with the exception of they always thought that you would lose a lot of muscle if you stuck with it. Right. There was a study that was published not long after I got onto the ketogenic diet, which, which was one of the ones that found that like, you know, ketones were extremely, extremely, you know, leucine sparing. So, so that's anti-catabolic, right? Yeah. yeah very strong anti-catabolic. Yeah. So, you know, learning that, this was like, oh my gosh, like this is the holy grail. Like right. I can actually stay lean and then I could put myself in a caloric deficit, burn body fat, or I could actually put myself in a surplus and possibly build muscle and not gain a whole lot of body fat if I play my cards right. Right. So it was really a combination of both. But I mean, once I dove into the medical research more, that was obviously the more exciting side for me. The physique and the physical side of it kind of just came natural. I didn't have to work really, really hard at that because I didn't have these big surges in insulin that were messing me up all the time. So right. once the diet was kind of set, it was just set and I could focus on the other stuff. Yeah. I think today the ketogenic diet, ketones in general, 
exogenous or endogenous production, I think is like a very popular, exciting research area. And I'm just curious in terms of your audience or what you're interested in, are you most excited about the physical performance applications, the cognitive performance applications, some of the therapeutic potential, the weight loss, body composition potential, and some of the, I think, what's personally pretty interesting, the anti-aging longevity potential. I mean, I think just in terms of our audience, I would describe them in three main buckets. I would say that you have one group that are athletes. They want to maximize their performance, maybe at the expense of longevity, more like the bodybuilding types, Mm -hmm. right? They want to win that Olympic gold medal or they're in an occupation that cares about optimizing that short-term performance. Maybe you're in the military. Maybe you're a first responder. I would say the second big category is folks optimizing for longevity, right? Some of the data around reducing insulin, reducing glucose, ketones, tricking some of the longevity pathways. I know just folks in our Silicon Valley network are really you know, looking at ketogenic diet as a way to extend their health span. And I would say the third category is kind of, I, I imagine kind of your story, which is, okay, how do I optimize my body composition? I might have some medical issues that might be treatable through diet first. If, if you, there's all those kind of three canonical buckets what does your audience look like, and what are you personally interested in? Are you talking to all of them all at once, or how do you how do yeah. you balance all of that? It gets tough because the audience sometimes gets dictated by just what trends and what works mm-hmm. out, works out, right? So yeah. it's like I can put equal amounts of content surrounding all three, which I'm I wouldn't say I'm equally passionate about, but I'm passionate about all three, right? Yeah. But the content surrounding body composition and and body fat and just overall human performance in general yeah. seems to take off more and so you have to kind of feed that a little bit i'd say i'm most excited about the longevity side for me that's like metabolic efficiency metabolic flexibility and longevity just being able to change how our body sees nutrients to a make us live longer but b ultimately help us perform better too so I, i kind of in some ways tie performance in in some ways with with that metabolic flexibility and longevity because with efficiency and if our cells are operating more efficiently then probably going to perform better too right we're just going to perform better and operate for a longer period of time i'm not in it to get the most out of a workout every single day you know it's you were asking me earlier you know we were talking about workouts when we were in my studio and i'm just kind of like i'm all about just like i just want to keep moving and be mobile and flexible be able to be on the ground with my kiddo and it changes how i portray content how content goes out you know and now having a kid of my own it's like i'm all about i want to be around as long as i can i want to see him grow up i want to see his kids grow up right I think there's a lot there with the kid. Yeah. You want to be able to play with the grandkid and hopefully the great grandkid too, right? Yeah. So I think probably the folks listening probably get a sense of why one would consider a kid drink diet and some of the benefits there. So we won't go into the basics. Um, you know, look at totally. some of Thomas's, Thomas's videos already. Like we can get the basics there. But I think what I saw was interesting is that you've been pretty experimental with different variants of keto or low carb, right? Yeah. I, I would say that within the community today, carnivore is super interesting. There's been some discussion around organ meat versus muscle meat. And there's also discussion, I I know you did like a vegan keto or vegetarian keto diet as well. Curious to get your broad overview on the variants of keto and, you know, what are your basic, like, you know, you've done a lot of self-experimentation. You've talked to a lot of clients and, 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 and all, you know, folks in your community. You know, what would you say are like the things that have stuck with you in terms of all these experimentation or variants? Yeah, I would definitely say that I don't notice a big difference now between having low amounts of protein and large amounts of protein. Okay. I can say, like, go on record and say that, like, I've gone extended periods of time with lower amounts of protein and extended periods of time with higher amounts of protein. And I don't see 
within the ketogenic spectrum a whole lot of a difference either way. So what's the protein load? So I've gone as high as you know two grams per pound of body weight, which is very very high, and I've gone as low as you know 0.25 grams per pound of body weight okay. for me. So I mean that's that's so RDA low. is like 0.8, so that's yeah, pretty low. Yeah, so I've okay. gone really low. If your training intensity is high, really low, obviously doesn't work nearly as much. Right. But I'd say you know yeah RDA is at you know 0.8. If you're looking there, like I would say you're perfectly fine there. You know this is me talking, right? This right. is what I've experienced, and some people will say it's the complete opposite. But I, what I have learned is obviously gluconeogenesis being demand driven. Like like once you have enough ketones in your body, your demand for protein isn't that high because you're so leucine sparing. Like you don't need a whole lot of protein coming in your diet. So you can arguably get by with less protein, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I determined with the whole vegan keto challenge that I did. Now, I developed a lot of haters in that world when I did that because like, oh, Thomas is going vegan. No, I did vegan <laughs> for a few weeks and it was more so to prove that it could be done yeah. and to prove that like, hey, like mainly to a lot of the vegan community that despised what I did within the keto community. I wanted to show them like, guys, like you can do this and you can feel quite good doing it. You know, I didn't lose muscle. I stayed relatively strong. You know, my protein content was about 0.5 to 0.8. It was pretty low and yeah. it was mostly coming from you know, incomplete sources. So like how much, well, I mean, incomplete protein sources. So, I mean, I was getting, you know, flax and, okay. and, and right, things right. like that. So now one thing I have learned through all my research and my own self-experimentation too is that the body's pretty good at pooling amino acids where it needs to pool them and ultimately creating complete proteins. Like we right. don't need to need, be eating complete proteins. That being said, then I go to the other spectrum where I did a carnivore challenge where I was like, okay, I'm gonna go carnivore. And I, I started doing carnivores. The original plan was to do it for two weeks. I ended up pushing it about a month because I felt like I really need to give it the GI try. And I felt really good. I felt like recovery was good, but I felt like my body was missing some nutrients. Maybe I wasn't doing it long enough. I, I felt like I was missing a few things. But my point is like, overall, recovery-wise, I didn't feel a whole lot different from vegan keto than I did over to carnivore style. Right. So I've definitely you know, made that consensus that, okay, protein isn't as important on a keto diet as it is otherwise. Whereas like, I've done other diets before and like if my protein was low, I would feel it. Right. You know, when I was you know, in high school, if my protein was low with that demand that I was putting on it, like I would feel it. I would feel lethargic, I wasn't recovering, I'd feel more sore. So that's one thing definitely learned for sure. Other than that, there's multiple different ways to skin a cat. Yeah, People really are dogmatic and are very religious around their specific aspects of the diet, right? And I think we've been having a lot of carnivore folks on and it seems like there is some value if you have autoimmune issues exactly. and all of that. And I think that we need to have like a discussion that's a little bit more nuanced or clean. I think, again, if you want to choose a very strict, restricted version of keto, if there's a therapeutic use for that, if you you know have really intolerant to lectins or something, mm -hmm. then there might be a reason for that. But I think the question for most people, which don't have such strict autoimmune issues with certain types of nutrients from plants or toxins with the carnivores from plants, is actually more optimal to have a more balanced diet. And I think that's where I'm kind of personally interested. You know, again, like, I, like it doesn't matter if I'm eating like 100% meat or 100% vegetables. I just want to have like the most optimal diet for health span. Yeah. And it sounds like you're finding that through having sources of, of food from all sources. Well, one thing's for sure. I mean, we're not going to live to be a million years old if we're having a dogmatic approach on anything. Okay. That's the way that I look at it. Yeah. I, I don't think that saying like, oh, I'm only going to eat meat is going to allow us to live forever. And I don't think that being vegan is going to allow us to live forever. Right. I do think that it really does, A, come down to the individual. But B, it also just comes down to, yes, to some degree a balance. But what is what is that balance? And when does that balance you know, apply. And one of the things that I, I felt mentally very good on a, on a carnivore diet, I will say that I yeah. felt very good. And I think that has to do simply with 
inflammation. But inflammation is a root of a lot of things, but is it the root of everything? If we bring inflammation down too much, then our body's not able to react the way that it needs to react to certain things too. Right. So like, where do we draw the line? I mean, I'm not anti-carnivore by all means. In fact, if anything, that carnivore challenge made it so that I was more receptive to it. But you cannot say that you are carnivore and anti-plant nutrients or plant toxins and then go and put a steak rub that has oregano and this and that on it. <laughs> That's going to affect you from an immune system standpoint. If you're going to do it, then you better be doing it with just salt. Right. Like, I mean, if you want to like claim that it's the best and like, again, that could be the case. And I know that there's some guys that's out there that, do that. Yeah. Yeah, that are very strict and they believe it, you know, yeah. but you can't just say if that's the way it's going to be. And I, I learned the hard way because when I first started saying I was going to do carnivore, I was like, okay, I'm going to cook my meat, some, some macadamia nut oil and some avocado oil. And there's a couple of people that pointed out and they're like, that's not carnivore. And it took me getting into carnivore mode to actually think that way. So it's interesting because as you start becoming more receptive to that, you start, ah, okay. Yeah. Like if I'm if this is how I'm going to eat, then I need to be getting my fat from this source too. So eating the fattier cuts of meat and, and magically, yes, I did feel better. Excuse me. I did feel better than I did when I first started carnivore and I was eating leaner meats and adding my fats in. Right. So it's just interesting. And it just kind of brings me back full circle that like what balance for you might be totally different than balance for me, period. I think that's like a lot of where my discussions go as well, which is that you have a different genetic baseline. I have a different genetic baseline. Maybe our goals are a little bit different. Yeah. If we have different glucose metabolic responses to different types of foods, like we've got to be optimizing ourselves a little bit. Yeah. And that's where like self-experimentation, getting educated on how to best understand these is, is, is really important. Yeah. So like what has stuck to you? I mean, I think in terms of all these things, I mean, what is like a typical diet? I mean, it might be kind of a silly question, but I think it might be just helpful to get a sense of, you know, what has passed the Thomas Lauer kind of like in your staple list of go-to items for you? Yeah. I mean, it has changed since doing that carnivore experiment. I am much more open to animal sources of fats, like by a lot, a lot more, yeah. you know, more so than I was before. So now, you know, I generally, you know, I'll still, if I have eggs for breakfast, I'll cook them in some duck fat or some leaf lard or something like that. That's coming from like a really good source. Whereas I used to only cook with like coconut oil and stuff like that. So now, yeah. you know, I'm expanding a bit more there. I'm still like come from the school of thought of like keeping it moderate fat in the morning and leaner in the midday and then higher fat in the evening. It's just kind of my philosophy. I mm -hmm. always called it the protein sandwich hypothesis, where I feel like you have you have more leeway to eat more fats in the morning. And I don't want to go off on a tangent, but this is interesting stuff. So there's a BMC genomic study that found that like we have more ability to eat fat in the morning with less likelihood of that fat getting stored, like dietary fat. We can eat more dietary fat in the morning with less likelihood of it getting stored, mainly because of one particular gene, PER1. Now that makes it so that your fat sensitive, your fat cells are less insulin sensitive in the morning, but your muscle cells are more insulin sensitive Interesting. and vice versa in the evening. So if you eat a bunch of fats in the evening, you're higher risk of those fats spilling over and going to storage than you would by flip-flopping it. So it's interesting. So I, I tend to keep my fats moderately high in the morning and then I kind of bring them down a little bit more midday and then I bring them back up a little bit in the evening time just to get my calories up but not real high. And so that's kind of just my method. So I have a lot of different ways that I'll do that, right. you know, but, but now it's, yeah, if I'll have some eggs, I'll usually do something like two or three whole egg yolks and like one egg white because the egg right. white is the most inflammatory part of the egg anyway. The yolk right. is just so, you know, that's a lot of times what breakfast will look like for me with maybe a little bit of bison mixed into it and, right. you know, maybe a little bit of bok choy. Like I'm a big fan of bok choy because I feel like it's a, yeah, it's a cruciferous veggie where you get kind of the anti-estrogenic effects without a bunch of the raffinose, a bunch of the sugar that comes from like broccoli yep. and cauliflower, which yep. can bloat you and make it, I don't, last thing I want to do is eat broccoli and 
the morning and be distended all day. So that's like kind of a go-to breakfast. It's kind of the bison, egg, kind of bok choy, just kind of mixed into it. But right. I fast a lot too. So a lot of times I don't have breakfast. Yeah. You know, midday, like I said, it's usually pretty lean. So, you know, I might have, you know, some white fish or I might have, you know, some chicken or something. And if I'm going to have white meat, it's almost always lean white meat because the fatty acid profile of chicken is just not all that great when you right. go for a higher fat cut. So I usually try to do some kind of fish or try to do some kind of white meat you know, with lunch and then again, some toxins with some veggies, right? And then, <laughs> so, so I usually will have a little bit of veggies, but I tend to bloat a little bit if I have veggies midday too. So I don't, I mean, just for that sake, I don't want to feel like that. So I try to carefully pinpoint what I have. Yep. Any source of fat, usually going to be like pork rinds or something that's relatively convenient for me, I'm trying to get somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, 40-ish grams of fat. So it might be a little bit of like avocado mayo, maybe a little bit of pork rinds, whatever. And then dinner, my wife's usually making something. My wife's an amazing cook. So she makes all kinds of different keto dishes you know so sometimes it's something fun we don't do a whole lot of dairy in our house so we do you know almost everything with coconut right so she'll make you know chicken pot pie or something with like some coconut flour or some almond flour made with coconut cream to make the crust you know so, so she, we have some fun with it you know yeah. at this point i've been doing keto for so long like i could go one way or the other like i could sit there and eat just like a really bland steak that has no seasoning on it whatsoever but if my wife is enjoying the process of cooking then i'm going to indulge her and i'm gonna have some fun with it she yeah. knows where my limits are and she knows where my lines are but i don't believe in just being completely militant about it i've been on the high performance end of the spectrum and i've been on the lifestyle end of the spectrum and i like to find the balance and if i need to flip a switch because i need to go into performance mode because i need to get ready for a photo shoot or i need to do something yep. then i'll tell you what i'll become a little bit more of a machine and my wife probably doesn't have the most fun and you know then i will be tupperwareing it up with my you know boring steak and a couple green beans and <laughs> yeah yeah no let's let's talk about that i, I think we we're touching up upon it a little bit where I, I think back to the dogmatism i think there's definitely a, a group that's very zealous on being super super strict and i think it's not clear in terms of literature that being perma keto is necessarily optimal and i think especially some of the research coming out of the buck institute showing that a cyclical ketogenic diet is having similar outcomes as a permaketogenic diet in terms of health span for an animal study, right? So I think the literature is still open on what is optimal. So, I mean, it sounds like you, you painted some picture around that you will relax your carb restriction, you know, just for like overall happiness yeah. versus like, okay, if we're going for high performance mode or a photo shoot mode, then we'll be very, very strict. Yeah. I mean, is, is that kind of how you see it? I mean, yeah, I think that's like what I feel like that's like most of my conversations with people that have been in space or have been in keto for a long time. Totally. It's like you get to the body composition and get very, very fat adapted through a very long period of, of, of being strict keto. And then once you're in that fat adapted phase, you can add in, you know, Absolutely. a little bit of the carbs and it's going to like, you know, push up your glucose a little bit, but you're so fat adapted and so insulin sensitive that you come right back down in the next couple of days, you recover. Well, I mean, even quicker than that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I just like, yeah, if you were to really go to town and have some carbs, it might take a couple of days or a day, yeah. but I mean, quite honestly, like, yeah. so my ketone levels are never all that high. So like, I think a lot of it has to do with efficiency, right? Yep. Like, if your cells are efficient, they don't, the demand isn't as high. Yep. It's the same kind of thing. Like you see it with glucose, right? Like peripheral insulin resistance. Like people will be like, why is my glucose high? Well, because your cells aren't using all that much glucose yep. now. Like your peripheral tissues aren't. And that happens. So fat adaptation. So like my body, like if even at the end of like the three day fast, like my ketones will still be like 2.5. 
<laughs> it's just like I just I've been doing this for a lot longer than even a lot of people that are you know experts or influencers in the community. So yeah. like, I've got a pretty good litmus test on what longish term keto looks like. Yeah. And like I keep I just they just don't get that high. They used to get way higher. You know yeah. they used to like I used to register even on even on the P sticks which are largely inaccurate. I used to register purple for months. Whereas most people when they start keto like. You know, they'll be register purple on a keto stick for a couple of weeks and then it goes away because it's yep. measuring acetoacetate and that's, you know, that's excess ketones. Right. So I was, I was creating excess ketones for months, you know? Yeah. So I know for a fact that my body at one point in time was creating a ton of ketones. And my point in saying all of this is that I can have 80, 90 carbs in a day and still be at the same amount of ketones in my blood that I would be if I wasn't. And yes. that's A, because I'm active, because I'm pretty heavily muscled. So there's some factors there. But C, because I'm fat adapted. I'm very fat adapted. Yep. So when I say cyclical ketogenic diet, I'm pretty, like it all depends on how you look at it. I don't believe that doing like carb cycling in a weekly basis is the best thing. I don't think that like going three days keto, two days not, three days on, one day off, because you never really get your body a good chance to like thrive with yep. the ketones, in my opinion. So I usually am more of like, I'll go two months keto, maybe one month off, maybe two months off. But even when I'm off, it's very low glycemic and still pretty low carb. We're right. talking less than, like usually like 130, 140 grams of yep. carbs. That's off keto for me, yep. which is dancing a fine line where it's like, if I were to skip breakfast the next day, I'd be back in keto. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I feel is really, really great. Yep. And a lot of the people that I've talked to have kind of settled into that same world. And just because you're trying to get people to understand your way of eating doesn't mean that you need to live this black and white lifestyle simply because it's what you're preaching. Yep. You know, it's like, I preach keto, but does that mean that I have to be keto all the time? Absolutely not. It right. means that like keto is a tool in my toolbox and it's, I'm indebted to keto because what I've done, what it's done for my body, what it's done for my family. So I owe it a lot and I want a lot of people to be able to experience what I experienced but I also want to be able to live my life in an optimal way and be able to be targeted with my keto diet. And that's what I call it more than a cyclical, I call it a targeted ketogenic diet because what is your goal? What is your target? Yep. What are you trying to do? Yeah, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense, especially with like the notion around ketone chasing, right? People want to just like yeah. show really, really big numbers. Like, okay, why do you want to do that? Like, what's the goal there? And I think it's also pretty interesting in, in my experience with the high performance world, oftentimes you'll want to use carbs strategically before events, right? Absolutely. So it's just like, again, what is your goal? If it's for a therapeutic use case because you're diabetic or have some sort of syndrome, then yes, maybe be much more strict because that's a health issue. But for a performance issue or longevity issue or health span issue, it's a little bit more nuanced in yeah. terms of just, okay, let's just only eat meat for the rest of our lives. Yeah, and I mean, if you have a geoblastoma and you're trying to you know stave off a brain tumor, then that's one thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've, I've even wondered, I'm like, oh, if I got diagnosed with epilepsy and something like randomly adult onset epilepsy <laughs> um, it would in some ways I told my wife I was like it'd be kind of relieving because then I would just have no question that I just do the keto diet yeah. and there's never any like experimenting that's going to confuse me because I go full bore into what I, I do and when I learn things it can get frustrating because I try to you know track data points and things and even when I'm cycling in and out of keto it's really hard to tra track good data like it's just everything's all over the place Hey listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle at HVMN. Now back to the show. I wanted to ask you a question because I'm curious your thoughts on this is if we took, for instance, like 500 years ago, yep. there's diseases that would ravage in like, you know, 
infectious Famine diseases. Famine killing people. Yeah, yes. things like that. So if we had like the intervention that we have today to be able to like fight off, you know, a staph infection or right. things that would ordinarily kill people, if we if we had all the same like advances there with medicine, but we were able to apply it to what we were eating 500,000 years ago, do you think people would live as long as they are today or longer? I think it would be longer. Yeah. And my thesis there, my proposition there is that it's pretty clear that, I would say that there's more and more data suggesting that whole unprocessed foods are generally better than processed foods, right? Like yeah. I think the diet today of the average American is like 50% processed, right? So I think even just from a food selection 500 years ago, I mean, there just wasn't processed anywhere there. And then two, I think that like the sugar intake, I remember just seeing this crazy statistic that like in 1800s, the average American had like less than like a pound of sugar a year. And now it's like, you know, 50 pounds of sugar a year, right? So I think the carbohydrate intake was much lower. I think it's an interesting argument around how much protein access did, you know, the average person have. Because I guess in the 1500s, if you're a surf, you're not probably eating a lot of protein, right? Like you're eating like the bread or like other grain. But I would say like, I think probably the biggest thing is that you probably just have a much more unprocessed diet and your livelihood was much more active. Yeah. I think that's like one thing that I've been thinking a lot about where you and I make our livelihood through our creativity, intellectual capacity, right? Like you're not making money by lifting weights necessarily, although maybe the photo shoot stuff you need to <laughs> Some indirect that. way maybe. But I think mainly like the folks, that, you, know, you know, our producers and, and your staff here, I mean, they're creating, their livelihood is intellectual, yeah. which is probably not optimal again from like a physical health outcome perspective. Yeah. So my thesis would be like, if you're nobleman and up in terms of having access to a lot of protein you're probably gonna be able to live longer but, but i think if you're like a surf who's just like able to only eat like barley or something maybe yeah. not i'm in the same boat as you yeah. you know and it's like the the only one that i raise question this is coming from someone that's a very active person yeah. is like will a car arguably last longer i mean it's not very apples to apples but will a car last longer if you leave it parked in the garage all the time and just turn it on every now and then just to keep the oil circulating and just to keep the batteries charged. It makes me wonder, like, if we were eating real ridiculously clean, this is horrible for me to say because I'm a very active person. I promote everyone getting active. Yeah. But, like, do you think, like, physical activity actually wears us out to the point where our cells actually might die or does it actually like, encourage? And there's different studies that show different things. Right. It's just so wild. I'm not even challenging what you're saying. It's just yeah. brought up something that I've thought about. Like, wow. Like, And the other thing that comes up is even alcohol. I don't even drink at all, but I look at the adaptation of fasting is all about stressing the body, right? Yes, the hormetic effect. So yeah. alcohol, to some degree, is it stressing the liver and actually making the liver stronger to some certain point? Like right. what, so, so you can make this weird argument with anything. And I think my point in saying all this is like, it's like, God, you can argue so many different ways on this. Back to, you know, the question you flip back to me is, yes, I mean, I, I, I do think so too. I think we definitely would live longer in the sense that less processed food. And um, I also think people were generally like... A lot more, they, they were happier, I think, in a sense that it was very black and white if they were unhappy. Because if they were unhappy, they were probably, probably dying, dying or getting yeah. like attacked. Yeah. And it was so like the instances of just being stressed were probably a lot less. Like you didn't know any different. Like you just were surviving. Yeah. And that was just normal stress. Yeah. And it wasn't like, oh my God, am I going to eat today? It was more so like, okay, well, Jimmy killed a boar. Like, see, you know, it's like, but I think the stress was just different. Whereas like, you know, this day and age, I think it's more the stress thing. Like that's killing us. I think actually that's probably the most important factor. Actually, I think you hit it on the nail. I think we we're talking about this a little bit earlier, but I think capitalism is really good at maximizing the GDP, the productivity of a group. 
but it's probably suboptimal for the happiness of the individual. And yeah. I think it's an interesting world where I don't know if people are happier today in modern society versus maybe us 500 years ago when you had like your family and your tribe of 100 people that you cared yeah. about. You didn't have like a celebrity out there like making you feel jealous about them. You didn't have like weird social media like getting stressed up all the time. Your job was pretty stable. Like you didn't have like a lot of material requirements that I think capitalism and, and materialism has really driven for us. I think based on happiness that the reduction of cortisol is probably really huge, a huge impact. Yeah, it's just wild. I mean, yeah. I just, I, I think about this. this. This is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night that stresses me out. Yeah. <laughs> the things that stress me out are the things that like thinking about like, yeah. you know, how wild it would be. It's just, and someone said to me, it was a really powerful thing. We were talking about habit loops and I know we're going off on a little tangent, but I yeah. guess this is what podcasts are about. Yeah. You know, it was, we were talking about habit loops and I was talking about phone addiction and how I noticed when I get more stressed, I tend to default to a little bit of phone addiction where yeah. I'll check my email and say, yeah. because you're you're just seeking dopamine. Dopamine hits, boom, boom, yeah. boom, phone, this, that. And you know, he said to me, he's like, you know, I noticed an interesting thing. He's like, social media and everything in general, like uh, when I'm deprived of social activity or community is when I start seeking out dopamine hits. And he gave me a perfect example. He's like, I used to go to lunch with friends. He's like, and then all these friends would get, started getting busy and it started becoming less and less. And then I started realizing that I had associated the dopamine hit with the social side of things. But now that the social aspect was going, I would just go to lunch alone. And I started associating the dopamine hit with food. It's like I started establishing a food addiction. I wonder how much actually comes back down to us as social creatures and really just requiring that dopamine hit and happiness coming from a social side of things. And social media in a lot of ways takes that away from us. Hijacks it, yeah. Yeah, where it's like we feel like we're getting social interaction we really do like that's the hard part is we're intellectual is intellectual creatures and we're coming strongly frontal lobe where we're like well, I'm getting my social interaction. Yeah, Thomas liked my thing. Yay. Yeah, yeah, but so you're not getting the true. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, holy cow, then we can go to a whole like, biofeedback world and like yeah. different you know, frequencies and energies and stuff like that. Like, you know, of course, you're going to pick up energy being around other people and yep. you feed or die off of that energy. So back to the original thing at hand is 500 to 1,000 years ago, there was that sense of community that I think would really keep people alive. And if that was applied with what is available today in terms of advances, yeah, that's why I think people would live a lot. Yeah, one of our mutual friends, I won't name the name, but he mentioned that he doesn't have any caffeine or any sort of stimulants. And I think his thesis was that essentially caffeine is a denosine mimetic and then basically you upregulate the amount of denosine receptor, which is like kind of a tiredness receptor. Yep. And his whole thesis is basically like, okay, you don't want to be upregulating a bunch of denosine receptors. But I think that level, like I'm like, okay, that's fine. I will have more caffeine. But I think the next level, which is interesting, kind of reminds me of the dopamine point, is that what if you had so much adenosine receptors that you start pushing down and downregulating serotonin and dopamine receptors? Do you get like less happy? So like I'm just curious in terms of like, have you been trying to structure your life or your patterns to minimize some of these habit loops? So getting off of caffeine is one of the harder things for me. So I'm curious if I, I, we're, on, we're on the same page totally. <laughs> I don't know if I, I think I know who you're talking about and I'm yeah. not going to name names. We'll talk afterwards. But yeah. he or she may know um, that I recently had tried cutting out caffeine or yeah. I, say, I say try because I didn't like I wasn't committed to going cold turkey. I was going to switch, keep the green tea in the mix like, yeah. and try to keep it under like 50 milligrams a day, yeah. just small amounts of green tea. And it's been like going on three months now. And I actually, believe it or not, I feel like my cravings are worse. I'm more mellow and I'm less reactive. That's an obvious thing. Okay, okay that's like, you know, less catecholamines. Like I'm maybe less adrenaline. I'm less jumpy yep. and things like that. That's okay. Uh, physical performance, no significant change. But like seeking the dopamine hit, it hasn't, like I'm still seeking the dopamine hit. 
and I'm not getting it from caffeine. So now I'm like, I'm like cost benefit here. Like I'm like, what is, <laughs> I, I have caffeine. Like I'm certainly at a point now where I don't really need it. Like I've been off of it. Like, so I don't feel, wake up needing a cup of coffee, right. but like the benefits, the coffee seem to, in my opinion, kind of outweigh what the, the negatives were, but I, but it's, it's only been a few months and yeah, yeah. the whole process of, you know, like CBD, for example, is supposed to like does the opposite. Like CBD, I've often thought like CBD changes adenosine receptors in a way where it makes it so that we basically have more adenosine receptors. Right. So does that mean that that's going to make you groggier and make you do the opposite long term? Right. And that, it's just a wild world. I mean, it's kind of comes back to everything in moderation, including moderation, I guess. I guess right. I don't cop out to say it, but I found that like cutting out caffeine was more of a placebo effect more than anything for me. I was like proud of the fact that I was cutting out caffeine. Yeah. And the reason I did it is because I was in the process of getting my helicopter pilot's license and I was like, okay, well, when I'm flying a helicopter, I don't want to be shaky and stuff and I want to be able to be clear. Yeah. And it did help me with that. Yeah, I just wondered if everyone, every each of every one of us have a different U-shaped curve for a lot of these things like exercise you mentioned, right? Like, or alcohol. Like there's some hormetic effect, right? If you're running like, 100 miler every single day, that's probably gonna not be optimal for longevity. But if you're not doing anything, probably not optimal for longevity either and it's like and probably we have different set points just given our genetics and, and kind of environment we were raised in right with even potentially even alcohol although i think the alcohol data that i've seen in terms of being optimal for longevity is more of an epidemiology or associational yeah. study whereas i don't think they've done experiments where it's like okay here drink a beer i don't drink a beer see who lives longer right that hasn't been done one thing i wanted to touch upon was fasting so you mentioned fasting a couple times and my personal story of getting into keto actually came from fasting first yeah. and then into the ketogenic diet where I think of fasting as eating your own body fat or a ketogenic diet is essentially exogenous fat yeah, as, yeah. as your primary source of calories. So I think it's like very much a, a similar tactics for the same metabolic strategy, right? Just restriction of carbohydrate and, and shifting to fat metabolism. It sounds like you started off with a ketogenic diet and then started experimenting into intermittent fasting and fasting. Curious to hear about your experiments with fasting. Something like you've done a three-day fast before. My longest fast ever was a seven-day fast. Curious if you've done like really long fasts. Five days is my longest. I do yeah. three days like every, I don't know, four months or so. Yeah. You know, I really like three days. Like I think that's a perfect sweet spot. Yeah. Recently, I've become a fan of the 36-hour. I love like a, I love a, like a frequent every couple of weeks, 36 hour yeah. fast, mainly because, and again, I'm digressing, but this is fun stuff. It's like the element of mastery that comes with being able to go through <laughs> the evening time. Yeah. The evening time's a tough time. You know, it's like yep. you, you go home, I've got my wife, my kid, they're eating dinner and I'm not, you know, and it's like, there's an element of mastery that yep. comes with that, that I just really enjoy. And I think sleeping hungry is the hardest part, I think. Totally. I find myself, it's like 7.30, can we go to bed? Can we just <laughs> to, like, knock this out? Like, yeah. I mean, I love fasting and fasting was implemented into my diet, like only a couple of months after I started keto. So okay. it was, so it was very early. effectively did both. Okay. You know, and it was honestly, I was told to do intermittent fasting before keto, but I was afraid. Mm. It's like keto, a lot of people are the opposite, much like you, like, well, yeah. you, you probably just weren't thinking body composition the way I was or anything like that right. in any way. But I mean, a lot of people that I talk to that are looking to lose weight, like fasting is a challenge for them and it's kind of scary. But then a lot of people are also the opposite. They're just like, it's, oh, it's easier for me to just not eat than it is to think about eating that bacon and eggs. Right. So I fall into the category of I wanted to, I was a, don't take my food away. Like, don't take my food away. You know, and then all it took was having my appetite suppressed <laughs> by being on keto where I'm just like, oh, I don't even really want breakfast. So I was not really doing an intermittent fasting style. I was just like two days a week doing like a full day fast. You know, okay. it's like, and it was for me, it was purely a, a calorie thing. I've always been big on looking at calories over the course of a week versus every day. And that was how I was taught. And that's how it made sense to me. So I don't look at calories daily. Like I just, I look at calories weekly. And if I had 
two days a week where I wasn't eating. That's a heck of a lot of calories at the end of the, the week, net net. Okay, so it was almost, almost like you started almost simultaneously, which yeah. is pretty fascinating. I mean, again, I think again back in 2010. I mean, this is, must have been pretty wild. I, I don't think people were talking about like fasting at all. No, it was a. It, it must have been like, are you going anorexic? Are you weird? Are you oh, crazy? Well, I mean, it's story <laughs> of my life. I mean, yeah. I, you're talking to someone that was. Again, you know, a runner all through like middle school and running extreme distances. So I've always I was used to being the weird little runner boy. Hey, little, you know, uh, what are you doing? Like, what are you, you know, running a marathon? Like, you're. I was always doing weird things, yeah. you know. And I had a very unconventional childhood. Like, I, you know, essentially was did independent study from the time I was like 13 on. So I worked full time to help support my family, right. like all through high school. So I, I had a weird upbringing. <laughs> like, I just, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of a unique snowflake in that sense. So, so people were always saying weird things to me about that so it just came as no surprise yeah. you know i was you know here i was like not eating and like oh thomas is just being weirdo thomas again like now i'm just publicly weirdo thomas so. yeah which is a pretty good adaptation right like i think by breaking paradigms you're just they explore on that front of human knowledge right you need people that have low high risk tolerance to be able to be like okay i'm going to experiment and see what works and they maybe pe- pe- like pave a way forward for other people yeah totally i think one more relatively recent introduction into the keto space is this whole notion around exogenous ketones and i think you've had some ideas and posts and, and videos about that curious to get your sense of exogenous ketones i mean we obviously make a ketone ester we think about it as a kind of a fourth macronutrient type of a category in addition to your fat protein carbohydrate Curious to get your thoughts on exogenous ketones and then where do you see this ketogenic diet, low carb kind of eating go in, in the future? 100% with you on exogenous ketones being like a fourth macronutrient because yeah. fat is not the same as ketones. And like, especially like when now we see science that skeletal muscle tissue has the ability to use free fatty acids, not even ketones, in highly conditioned fat adapted people. Yep. So it just goes to show that some cells will preferentially use free fatty acids and some will use ketones, which leads us to honestly believe that they're not equal, they're not one and the same. So don't right. look at fats as ketones, like they are different. Right. And I think we'll start to see more evidence later on that there's probably different subbodies of ketones to be completely honest. I yep. mean, obviously we know BHP, acetoacetate, acetone, whatever, but I'm sure it's gonna go further than that. Yeah. And different cells will use them. So 100% agree. I think that there's practical applications wherever you need them, like predominantly the heightened cognitive function and heightened physical performance. Right. Uh, that's where the research is and that's where I see the effects versus, you know, there, there's other worlds that you can talk about. I mean, we start looking at longevity, that's going to be interesting to see because I actually do think that exogenous ketones will play a part in that. And then ketone esters are going to play a much stronger role in longevity than ketone salts would play in longevity. You can argue that ketone salts can have some effects on performance, this and that, like depends on where you look. Ketone esters is pretty clear. It's, you know, there's some pretty published stuff that's pretty straightforward with yeah. ketone esters and performance. Again, you can make the argument with salts, but it's a little bit ambiguous. I think from the longevity side of things, I think that's where the esters are really going to end up playing a part, but right. I can't say because it's too early. As someone that loves the idea of being dual fueled, I mean, I'd love to be able to go do a CrossFit style workout and be able to operate through the uh, whatever glycogen pathway I need to when I need to, or have more aerobic endurance when I need that. Right. You know, ketone esters have helped me with that. But by and large, like let your body create what it needs to create. And when you need to use esters or when you need to use an exogenous ketone for a practical application, that's exactly what they're there for. Hopefully we can come to a point where we can learn even more about how we can use them, you know, for longevity reasons. A lot of work yet to be done in the space. I mean, even with the ketogenic diet, right? Like there's an eating pattern that's been studied and still 
people are still doing new literature on how to best apply it for certain yeah. use cases as well. One thing in your, in your office here is that you have a massive wall of red light, infrared light here. And then you talked about tracking a bunch of different stuff. I'm curious, and yeah, it sounds like you have an Apple Watch on. Yeah. Now, what are the things that you like tracking? I mean, in terms of quantitative stuff, what are your go-to things? Yeah. What are kind of the devices, the biohackery stuff that you're into? You know, these the, bi- days? the biohack side of me is just, that's just a nerdy thing to keep me, yeah. you know, it keeps me motivated, to be yeah. completely honest, like learning that stuff. You know, my go-to, like red lights have been fun. Like my red light, the red light therapy, you know, we talked about a little bit, this like, yeah. what is red light therapy? What is getting it from the sunlight? Like, yeah. how do we tell? You know, it's, it's hard to tell, but I love gaming the system and, gamifying the process a little bit. Yeah. Uh, played around a little bit with like Aura and Whoop. I don't like to like say I like one more than the other, but I, I tend to lean towards the Whoop just because I, the Aura, like I lift, you know, and if I'm lifting barbells and stuff, it kind of messes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was able to put my like, Aura yeah, in my pocket, it's, yeah. It's, uh, but I, I, I like them both. And yeah. I think, you know, they're, they're great guys. Like those guys are awesome. I've talked to all, know all those guys. So it's, it just all depends on what you're doing. So yeah. heart rate variability has been a big thing for me. Uh, I think that's kind of a way of the future too. I think we're going to start learning just the, the Hey, well, the heart actually has the ability to be flexible, just like our cells do at a kind of peripheral level. Yep. So kind of the master switch, so to speak, can be more flexible. So that's something I'm really into lately. All kinds of different things. Meditation, I'm big into that world. Hard to quantify that. Yeah. You know, I don't have radio imaging just at my fingertips to see like what's working. But yeah. you know, I notice a, a pretty significant difference when I'm on my meditation game versus when I'm off. Yeah. I mean, I try anything that's thrown at me. Isolation tanks, hot sauna. Hot sauna, yes, that's a big one. I can't believe I left yeah. that out. Yeah, so hot sauna over infrared in, to me. You okay. know, like, so my juve lights here, the red lights, they have infrared too, so I feel yeah. like I get that. But I love sitting in a hot sauna. I'm yeah. a big fan of dry saunas. You know, I think heat shock proteins are an interesting world. Curious to see what's going to come up with. Maybe there is some already, and you can direct me that way, but is there research surrounding the world of heat shock proteins and ketones together? No one has studied it. Yeah. yeah. And that seems like the perfect combination. There. Yeah, heat shock both are anti-inflammatory. Yeah, yeah exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So, I don't know. So, you name it, I've probably tried it. Cold showers, ice baths, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Only on fasting days, just because I just try to jack my catecholamines and my adrenaline up as much as I possibly can. I have like, I see, I view my fasting days as like my, my, catecholamine adrenaline on days and my other days as my off days. So you just really jack up everything. You stress I, yourself out. I, I sit there and I like try to create problems. Yeah. No, I'm just I mean, it sounds like even a cold shower. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's, no, I just, shock, I just shock my body. I'm like yeah. figuring I'm already doing it. I feel like if anything's going to be... If it's going to be bad, it would be bad if it was chronic. And like, why would I want to just, I don't want to like constantly have these, like you don't want to be in that like heightened stress state all the time. In fact, the evidence shows that cortisol is perfectly good except like cortisol when it's high during a time of eating is when it's bad. So like cortisol is supposed to be elevated when you're not eating. It's like kind of a natural response and it's high in the morning. But if you're chronically stressed and your cortisol levels are elevated while you're eating, that's exactly then quite literally where the, like the gimmicky marketing is actually right. That's where belly fat does accumulate because we have more, you know, glucocorticoid receptors. We have more of those receptors in our visceral fat and our abdominal fat than anywhere else. And that's directly, of course, related with cortisol. So if your cortisol levels are elevated when you overeat, then yes, that does have a higher potential to store as body fat. There's no denying that. So I try to be like, okay, why would I want to have these spikes and stress on days that I'm going to be eating somewhat more frequently? I might as well have these spikes of stress where it's just going to pull body fat. Right. (laughs) That's my weird way of looking at it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think it's also interesting in terms of stacking, right? Like I think it's elegant in terms of you're really targeting your days off in in very targeted ways versus like, okay, I want to like kind of fast and exercise and do sauna in a very staggered way. And I think that reminds me of a lot of the periodization that pro athletes already do with yep. diet and exercise. And it sounds like you're doing that with kind of your biohacks as well, which is, I think wow. the first time I've kind of heard about that in terms of, yeah, it actually does kind of make sense fast with your 
with your ice and uh, everything else, which is basically just an even more cyclical, periodized version of what some of the top athletes are already doing, which is kind of cool. Call it bio-stacking. <laughs> I just came up with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of what it is. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One question I always like to ask as we wrap up here is that if you had infinite resources, infinite people to be guinea pigs, what study would you run? What do you think are some of the most interesting scientific questions in the human porn space that you'd love to answer or see? Cancer is near and dear to me because I've lost a lot of family to cancer. So I think, you know, if we had infinite resources and we really could really could look at just other forms of cancer, like, you know, non-small cell lung cancer, because like a lot of the ketogenic research is surrounding brain, you know, brain right, cancer, right. you know, geoblastoma. There's no denying that for geoblastoma, it's like ketogenic diet's the way to go. But, yeah. And I know that, you know, Don D'Agostino is looking into a lot of that stuff and that's really awesome. But I feel like, you know, it's still, it's underfunded, under-resourced, you know, and I feel like that's a world that I really want to see. Yeah. And I really, you know, and it's broad. Like I want to see other forms of cancer. I want to see in adjunct to chemotherapy and I want to see adjunct to radiation. I want to see realistic, practical stuff with the ketogenic diet and we can't really do that until we break through this barrier where it's more widely accepted. And that makes a lot of sense, especially with cancer. I think, like, I think if there's a critique on the space, it's like, the excitement without overhyping it and like how do we accelerate some of the research and data well and how do we not it sounds so bad but how do we not take the hype out of the diet portion of it yeah while you know talking to it because the can when you start talking cancer you put a, a little bit of a dark shadow on things like you yeah. just kind of do like you don't want people to think like keto's the cancer diet right you know that's the last thing you want i mean i lost my dad to cancer and it's, it's very near it's like i'm like really want to like like cancer sucks. Right. i hate it you know i want to find ways to do that and then it's even when I put content on my channel surrounding keto and cancer, it bombs. Like, it just doesn't do well. Mm. People just don't, unless they're there at that point. Like, you have to be in a special place in your life to be open to hearing it, let alone be, like, really wanting to hear it, yeah. you know? And so it's just, now, algorithmically, that tells me that people aren't looking for it. So we need more awareness there, and we need more, like, the more garbage that comes out saying keto is unhealthy, the more people are just going to never accept it as that. Yeah. And it's frustrating, but I definitely want to see something pave the way there. Yeah. How do you see this space evolving in the next few years, next five years? Yeah. I did a video on this specifically. I said, well, well the keto diet crash, you know, yeah. it's like, because it's been a common thing. If I looked at my crystal ball, I would say that keto is going to settle into more of a targeted ketogenic because there's two reasons. One, it's just too much for a lot of people to try to digest all this stuff. Actually, three reasons, really. Number two being, I think the term keto in itself, it sounds too aggressive at first. Yeah. Like keto, like it's just people like, it's just like you're adopting, it needs to be a way of life. It just not anything with a name. It just needs to change how we, we look at food and it needs to change how we look at a label. So that's one thing that's happening is it's changing how we look at a label. It's changing how we look at food. It's changing how we look at sugar. It's changing how we look at processed carbohydrates, processed food in general. So it's doing its job. We just need to make sure that we all stick together to a point where it's like it sticks around long enough for it to hit all the touch points that it needs to hit. And a lot of people get upset with all these different food brands coming in, making keto products yeah. and this and that. Oh, like, you know, you're coming in with all your erythritol and all this and that. And like, it's easy to get upset with a lot of these brands that are coming in and they're making essentially keto junk food, right? But I have a different view on that. I feel like if we're Nabiscoizing, <laughs> if I can make up a word, yeah. you know, keto, and we're doing something right, you know, because it means that people are starting to see it in a different way. And I would rather have a bright fluorescent bag of almond flour erythritol cookies than I would double stuffed Oreos any day. You know, let's put it that way. So yeah. don't hate on the people that are doing that because they're actually the ones that are grabbing the other people from the Midwest and, you know, that, that are just like have some of these high junk food consumption populations. Yep. You know, they're, so it's helping us. What we don't want is people over marketing. That's what's getting hard is like if everyone comes out with a keto product, everyone comes out with a keto food, 
then I feel like that's going to take the buzz out of it. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's actually what we need. Maybe yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me, like, I don't think I was old enough to, like, really cognitively be aware of it, but I remember, like, everything being low-fat. Yeah. Back when, I guess, when we're growing up, it's like everything's, like, the 100-calorie low-fat version of, like, the Oreo, the 100-calorie yeah. pack. And yeah. It's like, yeah, I wonder if that's going to be kind of the world that we move towards, like, the low-carb, healthy-fat version of it. Yeah, it totally could be. Yeah. Right, and it's better than what it is right now otherwise. Yeah. So cool. Like, how do our folks follow you along in your journey? What's in process for you for the rest of the year in 2020? What are you most excited about? Yeah, 2020, I mean, I'm honestly just excited to just grow the channel as much as I can right yeah. now. It's, you know, uh, we talked before, I've got multiple businesses. As far as the Thomas Delauer brand's concerned and spreading the word, I mean, it's just, I'm doubling down on it. You know, it's it's growing 100,000 subscribers a month right now. I just, I, we're, we're reaching so many people and I'd be foolish to, pump the brakes at all on that now you know obviously i put the right stops in place to make sure i'm not always building on someone else's land building only on youtube's land i'm not i'm not that you know embryonic but so that's just big for me for the rest of 2020 so i mean what i'm really excited about is just you know goal hitting two million subscribers by october you know and after that we'll see what happens so i mean growing i mean again like you're you're right 1.6 1.7 right now it is nuts i mean 100 i mean growing i mean that's like silicon valley hyper growth numbers right 10 percent month over month growth is like what like the best startups you know grow at so you're essentially like an uber in a human form yeah exactly (laughs) so unless youtube wants to pull the carpet from underneath me and be like no we don't want to serve keto content anymore (laughs) we'll see what happens yeah i don't think that's gonna happen yeah i mean that's another kind of worms we're like is there censorship in the space but we'll leave it for next time yeah thanks so much thomas you bet Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.